1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hello, everyone. I am Erica Monahan, and I am your host today for this History Exilo conversation. History Exilo is a New Books Network podcast hosted supported by the journal Critica Explorations in Russian and Eurasian Studies. And History Exilo is intended to be a place where historians can discuss their work, share their underlying assumptions explore similarities and differences, and most importantly, step a bit outside our area, their areas of expertise. So much of the work that professional histor- historians do fosters narrow specializations. We become kings and queens of our own historical hills. And we tend to live in scholarly communities holding much valuable information but so narrow that it invokes the image of a farm silo out in a field. And so history ex-silo, getting us out of our silo, intends to remedy against that and get historians talking to each other across subfields. I'm so excited about our conversation today, which is going to take place with three historians that have been looking at um, very similar, similarly themed um, issues um, in different parts of the world, and our guests today are Simon Franklin, Andrew Pedigree, and Arthur Dervedevin. Now, Simon Franklin is a um, professor emeritus from Cambridge University, and the book we'll be talking about with him today is The Russian Graphosphere. He is also author of many other um, important and distinguished works. I'm a Russian historian, so um, I've had the pleasure of learning so, so much from his work, and he he's going to tell us more about it today. And, um, our second uh, set, our second authors, are co-authors on a book today, and the book that they will be talking about is their co-authored book, "The Bookshop of the World: Making and Trading Books in the Dutch Golden Age." And the authors of this are Dr. Andrew Pedigree, who is the Bishop Wardlaw Professor of History at St. Andrews University in Scotland, and Arthur Derivedin who is a historian with him at the um, St. Andrew's University as well. And so without without further ado, may I ask you, Simon, to, or pardon me, um, may I ask you, Arthur, to begin by telling us a little bit about The Bookshop of the World, Making and Trading Books in the Dutch Golden Age.
2: Excellent. Thank you very much uh, Erica for that introduction and 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 yes hello everyone. Uh, I'm Arthur Devaden um, and it's my pleasure to um, uh, to begin this conversation. Uh, just a very brief word about uh, the book that Andrew Pettigrew and I and I wrote, uh, The Bookshop of the Worlds, uh, making and trading books in the Dutch Golden Age. Essentially Andrew and I um, began this book as an as an investigation, really, to deal with probably what is one of the most uh, underappreciated phenomena of the uh, Dutch Republic in the 17th century, an, an era uh, very much still known as the, the Dutch Golden Age. Now, if anyone knows anything about this era, it's about the uh, the beautiful paintings that Dutch artists produce, and that's still um, found in, in museums and galleries all around the world. Uh, Rembrandts, uh, Vermeers, uh, Franz Hals, van Ruisdael, these are the paintings that uh, to many people uh, are emblematic of the Dutch golden Age and certainly the Dutch produced many gorgeous and beautiful paintings in in this um, in this era but uh, what we wanted to to, uh, to explain for the first time and set out was the fact that actually the Dutch probably produced a hundred times more than a hundred times more books and printed matter than they did paintings so our book essentially sets out um, why this was so. Uh, why the Dutch became such important players in the uh, European international book trade and how books, um, printed posters, pamphlets, songs, poetry, how this whole matter of printed, uh, of the printed world influenced Dutch society and really in a way shaped uh, its 17th century. Um, and whether that's influencing its, its politics, or shaping its economy, or entertaining the Dutch, or teaching them at school or at university, or helping uh, unleash the scientific revolution, all these uh, angles um, are, are treated in our, in our survey. So that's really what our, what our book does.
0: Thank you so much for that introduction. And now, Simon, to start us off, will you tell us a little bit about the Russian graphosphere, 1450 to 1850?
3: Okay, thank you. Um, The first thing I want to say is that my purpose in... Writing and publishing it was not to um, promote a particularly pretentious term. It doesn't have to be called the graphosphere. Um, That's a convenience And whether I like it or not like it. I'm not wedded to it. Um, I suppose I come to this from the opposite end in all sorts of ways. And there are some curious ways also in which one meets in the middle. Partly it's the other end of Europe. Partly it's a very, very different kind of of, of culture for the production of words. But also I'm not, um, I don't want to pretend that I'm primarily historian of the book or indeed primarily a an early modernist. Uh, what I've been interested in um, is the, I mean, very broadly speaking, the impact on human societies of various forms of technologies of information, technologies of the word. And for much of my career, I was looking at that in a medieval context. So I had a previous book called Writing Society and Culture in Early Rus, which was circa 950 to Thirteen hundred. There's deliberately a gap between the end of that and the beginning of this. This is not volume two. It's not a continuation. The early modern period has its uh, has its s- specific issues, which I didn't want to. It needed rethinking from the start. But the graphosphere is uh, pr- printing is is obviously an important part of it. But it is um, the spaces of visible words it's where do we encounter words in life in society in public spaces in private spaces how does that technology of making words into things of creating uh, and encountering material texts um, impact uh, uh, societies the economies the cultures how do the various technologies interact with each other Uh, so printing plays a part writing plays a part um, but it has everything from uh, coins and seals to frescoes um, and shop signs uh, and tries to look at dynamics of, of the, and public, public graphospheres, private graphospheres, and tries to take a holistic and non-hierarchical view of the impact of uh, material words in a particular society. But I think to some extent the, the approaches are, are, are transferable. And we may or may not discover uh, areas of, of, of overlap and difference. But in terms of the printed world, it would be very, very difficult to find two societies so diametrically opposite from each other, and yet with interesting uh, forms of contact in the approach.
0: Thank you very much, Simon. And um, and now I'd like to go to Andrew. And Andrew, will you start us off?
4: By all means, I wanted to start, actually, uh, Simon, by saying what a truly impressive book um, yours is. Um, I love the way you encompass so many means of communication and so many settings. Um, And to some extent, that does um, uh, blend with our preoccupations because um, in our work here in St. Andrews, particularly with the Universal Short Title Catalogue, we've been careful to bring in every medium for which uh, uh, printing with movable type is used. So we don't recognize the old French distinction between books and (laughs) non-books, which seemed to me to be a particularly pretentious uh, attempt to create difference where, in truth, there is none. Um, what, where, when, we may discuss this later when a, a book becomes a non-book, but um, in, the U, in the USDC, we try and register everything where movable type is involved. And I think we would also recognize, Simon, in, in many areas of the, of the distribution of print, uh, phenomena that you describe in your book. For instance, Sweden has a very similar attitude towards protecting uh, the crown by maintaining a monopoly of of over over printing uh, and trying to prevent anybody else from setting up an independent commercial press. So, in that respect, it seems quite similar to the um, to, to the situation you have explained there. Um, I've got lots else. To to say about your book, lots of questions you ask you, but let's just start with that.
3: Uh, shall I pick that up a little bit? Um, yes, I mean, just to, because our, our listeners may not know just the extent of the contrast between the two. I mean, you are talking about, uh, it's quite overwhelming reading the book, just the abundance, the superabundance of materials at all levels, both. Um, the, the the diversity of production, the number of publishing houses, the number of centres which were authorising printing, the enormous trade in books, the superabundance of international trade, export, re-export, um, the emporium, I mean, as in your title, the making and trading of books, um, the attempts to... Uh, control it which seemed to be completely hopeless um, <laughs> because of the the degree of distribution of production um, though combined from time to time with the most extraordinary episodes of um, uh, the exercise of authority in in, in suddenly quite stomach churning ways um, that's at one end of, of the extreme of, of, of and that that, that every Every official utterance issued in more than four copies had to be printed. I mean, these are major, major, major generators of extraordinary amounts of, 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 of print copy. Um, at my end of the scale, although print came to Russia in the mid-16th century, it was kind of no big deal. And the idea that, that, you know, print is introduced and society is transformed just doesn't seem to work. Uh, It came, it went, it came again, it went again. Um, It was largely a church monopoly for a long time, church-state monopoly, and and really only became effectively deregulated um, in the 18th century. So um, one could barely get more contrasting worlds of print. In the, um, but the kinds of issues which I, I think are, are, are points of um, productive contact and exploration. Apart from the fact that actually Dutch production does does reach, one may go into that, but there there are direct contacts in various ways. Um, but um, uh, I like very much precisely the kind of. N- Non, well, not merely the non-differentiation between the, the, so to speak, the prestige book and cheap production, but the emphasis on the latter that is in your um, book that you emphasise very much. That uh, you know, printing didn't spread throughout Europe because everyone was buying Gutenberg Bibles um, because printers were were printing things that they hoped people would buy, but because they were taking commissions to sell their skills to people who wanted things to be printed, um, and that's usually fairly cheap production. Um, and, um, so I felt the, 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 um, the inclusiveness in looking at the way words are produced and circulated was a productive point of contact. Um, but, but you could hardly get a more decentralized, diffuse and bottom up system than you have in, uh, Holland. You could hardly get a more top down and control system than you have in Russia. Um, and those, those, um, those ends of a spectrum make for an interesting kind of book ending of a subject, which is often um, liable to produce fairly large techno deterministic generalizations. Uh, whereas it's clear from your book. And I think from mine that there are a tremendous, lot of other societal factors that come into it in, in, in trying to see how the extraordinary technology of print actually does and doesn't interact with spread throughout um, society.
4: I I think um, I I too fixed on that point of uh, techno determinism, and I think it gets things wrong in 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 a number of respects. One is that it seems to me that the critical invention of the Gutenberg era is not movable type so much as the distribution network necessary to spread all these books around Europe, Um, and it's often neglected because that has real, really important um, uh, consequences. If you take the, Gutenberg, the uh, Eisenstein model, where print is spreading so rapidly over Europe, um, and it's a revolutionary force, you are misled in several respects. Firstly, most of the presses that opened during the 15th century uh, soon closed their proprietors went bankrupt. So in fact, although you can map 200 places, which at some point had print during the 15th century, most of them had closed long before the turn of the century. And in fact, two-thirds of everything that was printed was printed in only 12 places. And that's because you needed deep pockets to be able to, to sell the books over a sufficient time until the edition was exhausted. Uh, And also because the network of uh, distribution throughout the European continent, uh, partly through the Frankfurt Fair, worked so effectively that you didn't have to be a major centre of production in order to have full access to books. And this is one thing I think people um, who are inclined, as we are to statistics, sometimes get very wrong. The sense that um, you can't confuse distribution with availability. For instance, many places on the European periphery, such as England, uh, were very low producers of exportable books, but it really didn't matter to English readers because the um, access to continental books worked so smoothly. If you look at the early collections, the early lists of collections in England in the 15th century, I would say 95% mm-hmm. of the books are imported. And I thought that was one aspect about the Russian graphosphere that I, 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 I looked for in your book, which didn't, I didn't quite find. And that was the sense that the Russian graphosphere also... Um, includes lots of Western books, which that make their way to the collections of um, uh, the nobility in, in, in the East. In other words, you don't have to be producing to be enjoying the marvellous Burgundian buffet that is print throughout Europe. And of course, the Dutch made a very great deal of money, not only through exporting their own books, by re-exporting books that came in from France and Germany, on which they could still make a profit.
3: A uh, lot of interesting and meaty points, absolutely, and that's very important. Um, I, I like the notion that it's it's the printing itself is not enough; it's the distribution and other things besides. But on that, before I come back to the import of books into Russia and printed materials into Russia. Um, i mean yes you you need deep pockets in order to be able to produce a fine book and then uh you need you need a lot of capital that you're spending before you can get any of it back uh but that's surely only one half of it f- f- through reading your own book um and i would have thought that particularly for local printers um surely the the the, the more um the, the, the capital light mode of production is is the less uh, the less prestigious items, the the broadsheets in particular, the dissertations in universities, things where there's actually all you need is your printing press, um, which is a one-off, uh, and then you're getting your money up front before you've even produced, uh, well, or, or very shortly after you produce it. So it is it is capital. Uh, much capi- much more capital. Light, and my assumption had been that most jobbing printers around the place were not making their money on putting a lot of a lot speculatively into producing books, but into producing the permits, the indulgences. The I mean, the indulgences go back to the time of Gutenberg. Um, the 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 passes, the, the 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 certificates, the all that kind of stuff, the decrees, um, which which are. Uh, high turnover, quick money in, quick money out, um, that which is has for so long been dismissed as ephemera um, but is a Im- really important part of the economics of, of, of print production um, without needing high capital, without necessarily needing the distribution network to go with it because that can operate on a very local market. Um, but back to, to books arriving into Russia, absolutely. Um, but... Well, one has to distinguish, I think, different phases. One of the, and and, and in a way, some of the things which arrive simply serve to emphasise the difference in print culture. So, um, one of the 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 uh, very intriguing, interesting chapters in your book deals with newspapers. Um, Dutch newspapers, along with German newspapers, do reach Russia um, in the uh, second half of the seventeenth century. There was an effective postal network. There were regular orders for a particular, uh, a regular number of newspapers to come in through Riga on the post horses. Um, But were they for people to uh, gossip, to pass their time away in idle curiosity? Absolutely not. These were highly confidential intelligence reports translated in the foreign office, the ambassadorial chancery with manuscript copies only for the Tsar and um, his civil servants. Um, so it was it, it was import of print, but not for the purposes of enjoying print. Similarly, um, Bibles. Uh, uh, one of the most intriguing contrasts, again for me, is I mean, Holland, Protestant country, partly, um, lots of emphasis on Bible reading. Um, not part of Eastern Orthodox tradition, individual Bible reading. The, the first complete text, even in manuscript, of a Bible from start to finish doesn't appear in Russia until the end of the 15th century. So that's you know half a millennium after the East Slavs were converted to Christianity. And, and the first printed Bible, complete Bible, is, is 1663, um, a very ambitious and very expensive production, which was not reprinted, and there's no evidence of the circulation of Bibles at all over that period um so there's there's um uh but but for the purposes of producing a printed bible and for the purposes of producing even manuscript translations of bible western printed books were imported um latin old high german so at that early stage western printed material fed into russian manuscript material in what in the book i call reverse technology transfer um, and it's really only in the 18th century that you begin to get, uh, with a great deal more travel in Europe as well, people travelled to Europe, people um, brought books back with them, um, the postal service was still operating well, that you begin to get people building up uh, substantial libraries of foreign books, um, largely specialist libraries to begin with, uh, for the medics who need to look after Tsar's health and so on, but not, not general circulation
2: Hmm. No, I mean, if I may pick pick up on some, on some of those points, so Simon, absolutely fascinating. And and just while we're while we're on libraries, I mean, I think it's probably worth remembering as well when we get to the right to the end of the 18th century and the creation of the first Russian Imperial Library, that this is a library that's entirely looted from um, from Poland Lithuania, and so it's filled with Western and Catholic books because that's what's being produced there. But I loved your, I'm very glad you mentioned newspapers because it, I've been a long aware of the the, the very interesting links between the Netherlands and Russia in in that regard. And this image you sketched, I think, is is just wonderful where, you know, for the Netherlands, we have this uh, anecdotal episodes of, of a say a, a schoolmaster in The Hague uh, whiling away his weekends by reading uh, the Amsterdam newspaper and, and he writes in his diary to say, "Oh you know, and I had, I had this all this time, so I read the newspaper front to back. And it's clearly a sort of relaxing thing. and then as you as you say, in in Russia, these exact same newspapers would have been treated as the most valuable foreign intelligence that they could glean useful information from. And I know of one instance where a Dutch newspaper publisher was actually um, um, reprimanded by his local authorities because of those things, although you might not think it did actually happen occasionally, um, because in one of his newspapers, he had called the Russian Tsar a prince. Or a grand prince rather than tsar, and this had come all the way from Russia. That this was an awful thing that the Dutch would speak of their great ruler in this fashion, and so the authorities had to remind the newspaper publisher um, not to uh, uh, not to do this again. So there's there's wonderful links between them like that. The
3: the, the area in which, and actually, this uh, I wanted to ask you about it because it's something which is is not so much in your book. You you deal Understandably, largely with, with words, but the area where Dutch print production was much more directly influential in Russia was, was uh, images, was engravings. Um, in particular, the Dutch albums of biblical illustrations produced by, uh, I suppose, mainly the, the Fisher dynasty, the Piscatores, so to speak, and Matthias Merian, also sometimes printed by Fisher, um, became in the second half of the 17th century quite extraordinarily pervasive sources of, um, imagery, not just, uh, for, um, uh, well for, uh, they were used by the Kremlin icon painters, they were used in the provinces for ch- frescoes in churches, they appear as, um, uh, uh, exemplar for images, um, in anything from enamels to, um, Uh, porcelain eventually in the late 18th century mid mid late 18th century and and they they produce uh, because several of them as as you know came with captions in latin or sometimes polyglot that genre became surprisingly widespread in late 18th century Uh, Russian writing. You have cycles of verse captions to Dutch pictorial Bibles being produced in Russian, um, which is, uh, as far as I'm aware, the only kind of direct literary engagement in a rather peculiar genre. Um,
2: I think one thing the Dutch were good at throughout the 17th century is, is this sense that they knew so few people outside the Netherlands would ever learn Dutch or bother to engage with this as an important language outside very limited areas of commerce, that they had to appeal to foreign audiences and foreign markets in other languages so this practice indeed of providing multilingual captions to engravings or to maps of sieges and also producing a lot of their own political and news literature in foreign languages so the dutch were home to numerous dutch language newspapers for instance but also french spanish italian English, um, uh, even Latin and Yiddish. So there is this sense that we're catering to the to the people of the world. And I was I was fascinated to see it, that reflected in your book, where in many ways, you know, there's so many different communities uh, and different languages and scripts that end up being used in Russia itself.
3: And spin-off scenarios which are not even dependent on the export of, of, of objects. So um, uh, this doesn't appear in my book, but the first... The first grammar of the Russian language, as opposed to the church of the white language, was written by a German uh, in Latin and printed in Oxford. But to get the typeface for it, this is 1696, they ordered it from Amsterdam. Absolutely. And Peter the Great, when he was trying to, to begin to commission... Uh, non ecclesiastical books, right at the beginning of the eighteenth century, so 1700, he started. He, his first, so to speak, private contract to do that was with a Dutchman, Jan Tessing, uh, who who produced a series of, of books in Cyrillic for the Russian market, and there was the expertise to tap into to do that. Which is uh, so there are so many ramifications of what was going on in in Holland. I suppose it was interesting to me as well. I wonder whether there's a reason that in your book. I mean, you deal with the 17th century as a whole, but but really the specific gravity, so to speak, is is the early to middle, um, more than the end of it. Uh, it's as if that is 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 the time when I get the impression the real kind of the real agendas are set, the energies are, are are primarily there, and then once. William of Orange comes along, it's kind of, um, that's all fine, but it it's, it's somehow seems less interesting. Is that, is that, um, is, is that chance or, 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 I mean, that is where your interests happen to lie or is there something objective
1: going on there? Is there a kind of decline?
2: I, I would say that it, a part of it is due that there is so much um, dynamic change and innovation right at the beginning of the 17th century with the, um, the 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 end of the Dutch revolt this mass movement of Protestant exiles from the southern Netherlands then very much still the heartland of print to the north and I think we deliberately therefore emphasized the, the sort of the the say the 70 years between about 1580 and 1650 as this sort of crucial like you say genus of what the Dutch print and book trade was to become. And that is not to say that there is necessarily decline later on. Uh, but I think that the, the Dutch print trade has sort of found its feet by the time you get to William III of Orange in the 1680s and 90s. And indeed, it is one of the arguments, although we, we don't necessarily devote as much time to it as perhaps we should have. But at the end, we do make a strong case to say that, you know, in the 18th century is often seen as an age of Dutch decline. Politically, I think that is definitely the case just on a European scale and as various industries that do decline. But actually, Dutch society remains incredibly wealthy And prosperous. And the print trade and the business of books really remains one of its strongest economic and industrial drivers, precisely because people still have enough wealth to enjoy it and to keep buying books. So, the only real thing I think you probably see changing later in the 18th century is a slow turn inwards that the Dutch ultimately end up publishing more books for that growing domestic market and leave the international market more to the French, the Germans, and to increasingly the English.
4: Yes, I think that um, one of the issues here is not so much of a decline in the printing culture and uh, publishing operation of, of the Dutch Republic, is that other parts of Europe are beginning to catch up. I mean, in Britain, for instance, there's an extraordinary explosion of print in the second half of the 17th century, which drags it into uh, the mainstream and also Uh, means that um, for the first time, really, Britain is exporting books uh, to the continent as well as to its colonies overseas. Uh, I think what unites the two projects we're talking about here is that they're, they're both in their different ways wildly untypical of European print culture as a whole um uh, 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 in different ways you're quite right to say um that everyday print is the center uh, of um uh, of money making where where returns are quick uh, and that's partly because there is so many um arms of the state to provide that uh work uh if you're in england in the uh, 1630s, uh, presses are really only allowed in London. Um, and so if you're the town council in Norwich, it's virtually uh, impossible to use print. Uh, on the other hand, in the Netherlands, as Arthur's made clear in his uh, splendid book on state communication, there's over a hundred different agencies which at what, some point in the century are making use of print to communicate with their citizens um and of course also i would imagine that they're pretty much on the extremes uh when it comes to to literacy um literacy rates i mean uh, the netherlands is so urban particularly holland internal communications are so good that you can be a publisher working in one city and actually send the printing out to another city, um, if your own presses are uh, too busy, um, and that sort of arrangement um, is 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 happening all over the uh, uh, all over the century and all over the country. Um, It's also the case that the gender gap in literacy, which is so marked in many parts of Europe, particularly in Southern Europe, is beginning to close in the Netherlands, with the result that women are probably much more influential in the publishing industry in the Netherlands than in any other part of Europe. Um, and And I would imagine that if you're looking at Russia, um, we're, we're, we're rather at the other end of the spectrum in terms of literacy rates. And I wanted to ask you about this, Simon, because um, I I've, I've followed all the references to, to, to literacy um, in, in your book, and it seemed to me that we're dealing here with something rather like East Asia, where it is very hard to develop the critical mass of readers for any sort of commercial... Printing operation, and indeed, it's it's it, it it seems like it's quite difficult even to come up with statistics about literacy rates. But you may you may be able to put me right on that.
3: No, that's that's correct. Um, I mean, the well, it depends what one means by literacy. Always, uh, I mean, the one kind of production which which sold pretty well, even in the second half of the seventeenth century and was produced in far larger quantities than survive, and indeed following the the rule which you quite um, uh, correctly stress in in your book, that the most read books are often the ones which survive the least, Um, but basic primers, ABC books, um, elementary training in reading, not writing. Um, And we have the records of the... um, main Moscow printing house for the second half of the 17th century. So we, we, they're, the, the, the archive is quite well preserved so we can trace the editions and they were produced in larger and larger numbers and by and large they didn't reprint unless, unless there was a market. So that we can, for, for basic reading, um, but a market for anything beyond being able to read a book in church um, was trivial right the way through really until the late 18th century. I mean, even when people start producing literary journals, they start producing little volumes of poetry, they start translating um, Western novels. Uh, it's a very small circle. Uh, and, and and it's still largely a court culture until the late 18th century. And, and only when you get a, a combination of two things um, in the late 18th century, one is um, the permission finally to set up private printing presses... 1783 and the second is the uh, release of the the the, the gentry from the automatic obligation of service you begin to get the what we might call the privatization of of literate culture um a more intimate personal domestic uh much more diffuse and, and 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 growing and that then the first public library comes not that long after that and so on um but i i uh, so, so that's absolutely a contrast, quite quite, quite right. Um, and then peasant literacy, not until you know, cheap production in the late 19th century. One of the things which surprised me about your book, actually, in terms of, of, of the cost of production, because I thought this was unusual in Russia, but it turns out not to be. I had imagined that it was unusual that until the 18th century, um, all paper in Russia was imported, uh, which added considerably to the cost. But it turns out that in Holland, also paper was imported, so it turns out one can have a fairly flourishing print industry with with with, with imported paper. But there was another dimension of it which I want to, to touch on, which is clearly you know entirely lacking in in the world I am dealing with, but is so striking in your book. Um, yes, there is there is the enterprise, the distribution of of, of production, and so on. The, the, the kind of naked capitalism of it all, the unscrupulousness of it all, the duplicitousness of it all, the ways of cornering markets, the ways of of of, of putting on false imprints to pretend that you're printing things where you're not. Um, the, the, it's, it, this is an unbelievably successful um, example of of. Of energetic, rapacious capitalism at its best or worst, isn't it? I mean, that's what comes across. I don't know if it's meant to come across, uh, but but that's how they seem to. And starting, well, starting. I don't want to say where it starts, but one of a, an aspect of that. I mean, you mentioned Andrew, um, uh, multiple printers, um, but it seemed to me a very significant point was, and you mentioned it early on. Was it Cornelius Clash um, that the, the division? In function between the printer and the publisher, uh, that the printer was could could hawk their wares to 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 so the rise of the intermediary, um, whether in trade or in production, and that's a really important invention. And and intermediaries whose entire focus is on looking at the opportunities, uh, and they don't have to worry about compositors, they don't have to worry about copyright. They're just they're, they're 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 all incredibly impressive chances
2: well I may be I know Andrew will have something to say about this Simon so may I just interject very quickly you've made him a very happy man this afternoon because uh, Andrew and I have a very harmonious writing relationship but and we've we've written multiple books together now but uh, we did often come to come to horns when when Andrew sort of put in another rapacious or another greedy or a word of such like when describing the Dutch so as a bit of a patriot I had to I had to sometimes try to work these out but I, think, I was I think not I'll, applying yeah.
3: it to a people as such I was applying to certain <laughs> entrepreneurs operating their profession yes
2: no i, I don't know that's very kind of you but I, I do think you are right i mean the, the dutch treated uh, printing uh, like a like a true business like like they treated many other businesses in the early modern period which did get them a lot of stick from merchant communities elsewhere from foreign powers who complained about this and you know occasionally the Dutch were in the political sphere punished for this um that their their merchants their publishers were deemed simply to be um Yep, too opportunistic and not respecting of the intellectual labors and the the, the the spiritual value of the book, so to speak. I mean, we know of some of the great Dutch publishers like the Elseviers actually being uh, forbidden from being in Paris for more than uh, a couple of weeks a year for fear that if they, if they were around longer, they would cut all these uh, deals, which would see the French uh, uh, losing money. And we know of, you know, so many complaints from English booksellers to uh, statesmen in England saying, uh, please stop this flood of, of, of Dutch books, uh, which have been printed over there in English and then imported to us.
3: And pretending
2: um, they've been printed in England. I mean, I will never been, be able to trust the yeah.
3: Bible again, a 17th century <laughs> when it says Basker yeah. and the assigns of whoever printed it in London or whatever. It's probably a
2: yeah, if it, says, if it says London 1590, I'm pretty sure it's Amsterdam 1640, actually. So it's not even just a different place. It's a different year altogether. But I can never forget that there is a, a response by, um, uh, by William Lord, who says, um, I, I take all these complaints of yours, but would you not want a, a, a better Bible that's also cheaper rather than an expensive local Bible? So there is a sense that uh, book buyers and collectors all throughout Europe do ultimately succumb to this idea that, okay we may not like them very much but ultimately they do provide us with with the books we want and so we'll uh, we'll settle on that
3: yeah no it 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 it, it clearly worked the elsephairs can I ask another question because one of the i suppose surprising things in the context of the overall picture or painting um is uh, there's one area which which in which you point out that the dutch weren't actually producing as much as one might think which is um uh, high level academic publishing. Um, the kind of Latin folios that, 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 fill many a university library. Um, and it's an odd gap, um, particularly since I'd always imagined that publishers like Elsevier did that. Um, so what's 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 going on? Why is there that they don't have quite a monopoly on everything, and they have right at the centre of what one might think of as as intelligent publishing in the seventeenth century? It's it, it doesn't they don't seem to be doing no, it.
4: It's it's just a very very shrewd choice, Simon, because it it's perfectly evident to the. Um, to the Dutch when they go to the Frankfurt Fair in in numbers from the beginning of the 17th century onwards, that the warehouses of Europe are stacked up with these high-quality texts printed in Switzerland, France, Germany, um, which um, large parts of the edition has never sold and and sometimes is close to being written down as waste paper. So because the, the Dutch have cash... They can buy these um, these texts at relatively low prices, which can then be resold again. So, actually, what's interesting about the Dutch uh, publishing industry is not only what they what they produce, but what they choose not to produce. And those choices are usually extremely shrewd.
3: Yeah. Let's go move on to a, a different. I'm aware that that that. Um... We, we don't have as much time as i'd love to have um but a, a topic that that we touched on earlier which is which is government commission of of printing and um the i mentioned the very striking uh point that that it, i don't remember the year but that it was that every every government uh bit of paper that needed to be produced in more than four copies needs to be printed 1669 so I mean, to me, that is a, a, a pre-echo, so to speak, a forerunner of of decisions made in Russia somewhat later. But the context is so different, and I wondered how you explained it. I mean, when uh, Peter the Great in... Um, he was very, very keen on printed administration for the last decade or so of his reign, from about 1714, 15 onwards, he died in 1725. And, and there's a huge expansion then in the number of... Um, Government documents, which are produced in in print, and and um, I, one of the things I've been doing is 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 with a colleague beginning to produce a, a catalog of early Russian printed blank forms, which is a very exciting subject. Um, but the point then in insisting that these things had to be printed was as a defence against forgery, um, because print was a monopoly. Uh, print was a guarantor of authenticity. With, with, with such a diffuse printing industry, what was the uh, why, why? Why did something have? To, what was the point of saying this has to be printed?
2: Mm-hmm. I think there were two main points behind it. One was administrative, and one was what you might call communicative. So. Essentially, because Dutch politics is so decentralized, there are so many different people involved in the political decision-making process that if you have an administrative document, a resolution you want to discuss, or even an incoming diplomatic letter, it's, it, it needs to be seen by many more people than it would at, say, the Russian court. So you don't just have the region sitting in The Hague at, say, the states general, the federal body, or the states of Holland, the provincial body. But all the 20 or 30 or 40 people there have to report back to their various town councils or to a specific noblemen or to the Prince of Orange. So it creates this cascading um, system of governance, where I think it may just it may just more sense for them to begin to circulate these in print, because a it would mean that they could uh, circulate them in larger quantities and ensure that there weren't too many variant copies of these types of documents in circulation. So standardization, in this, I can, standardization, I can, I is a big point.
3: Um, I mean, it is. You don't underestimate the number of copies needed in the 18th century throughout the Russian Empire. There were there were they were very very. I mean, the 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 distribution mechanism was was. Quite elaborate by the mid eighteenth century, and and very 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 detailed instructions as to how, uh, from the various ministries, um, documents were to be spread around the country, and then to uh, further production of documents to verify that one had received them, um, and uh, making similar sort of provision that you. Um, detail in your book for the dissemination, that is to say, um, posted in public places, mm-hmm. read art in churches, uh, and so on. And I think Peter perhaps even took some of that from what he'd seen in Holland when he visited. Um,
2: Absolutely. And no, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because it's one of my its one of my main interests. And I'm, in fact, I'm, I'm starting a, a major research project next year that's, that's looking on a sort of comparative European scale of how Government communicated its laws and its 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 political decision making um, to to essentially what you might see as the non-specialists, you know, not to 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 train jurists or to necessarily even other administrators, but to to its subjects and inhabitants. And I think that's and I think that's where you see uh, the the Dutch case also requiring so much print is a conscious decision that's made very early on and and from the Dutch Revolt onwards at the end of the 16th century, to I think. To, to engage more in public with um, Dutch inhabitants and citizens on a political level. So constantly to explain, I mean, the Dutch in the 17th century ended up being the, the most heavily taxed nation in the world. Its tax burden is far greater than what you see in in France or or England or or Germany, and this this did baffle a lot of contemporaries. You know, why are the Dutch, who initially revolted because of high taxation by the King of Spain, end up taxing taxing themselves double for this freedom? And I think the answer, uh, a, a, a good portion of the answer, lies in the fact that Dutch government's governance was so accountable. It was certainly not democratic. But it it was constantly seeking to engage with the people who um, uh, who buttressed it and whose consent was needed for this rule. And I think print and this this aspect of posting public information, of employing town criers, um, and, um, and and of posting up these placards, that was was critical process.
3: The sh- the the town printer as well as an office i hadn't one wouldn't have in, in 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 russia yes freedoms i loved the um the response of who was it in the, the the an english visitor in the 1660s very bemused saying the dutch these strange dutch they say and print what they like and call it freedom A very strange notion how, could, how can that be freedom yeah um yeah.
2: I mean I really I really enjoyed the the one uh, a nice in some ways it's a it's a comparison but it's also a contrast in in the the, the reference you had to Peter establishing these wonderful uh, columns uh, to, to sort of memorialize, uh, memorialize his, his sentences and his, his laws, but that ultimately these were taken down in favor of triumphal archers, if I'm not mistaken. And that's something which the Dutch, they did the exact reverse, because they had a very, very rich tradition of triumphal archers and making these whenever their, their sovereign ruler uh, before the Dutch Revolt, the, the Burgundians and then the, the rulers of Spain. And they they jettisoned all of that with the Dutch Revolt in place of having all these notice boards and, and laws exhibited everywhere.
3: Triumphal so, arches are arguably um, uh, also a Dutch model in that one of the early, uh, it's only in manuscript, translations from Holland is uh, an explanation of the, triumphal arches, including the inscriptions on them uh, for William of Orange's triumphal return after the Battle of the Boyne.
2: When he was king of England. And that's, that's that's always fascinated me, because they really only started giving him triumphal arches when he became king of a different country.
3: And then Peter took that up very soon. Uh, triumphal arches complete with, um, I mean, these were stage sets. They, they, they were wooden. They, they were Removable, but also with 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 emblems and inscriptions and and, and detailed explanations of, of what they were. But that was another kind of Dutch transfer. Yeah.
4: Can I take us down another uh, alley if, uh, for a few minutes as we're we're getting to the end of our time? And that is just to say, Simon, how absolutely delighted I was that your mention to of books which can uh, no longer be identified in the surviving. Uh, copy I think you called them lost non-books uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, this is a big big thing for mm-hmm. us because we've done some um, reverse graphing uh, to see how many books survive of every uh, every uh, of every edition and it's such a steep c- climb through two to one that it, you have to think that almost as many, Editions have disappeared altogether as were originally published. So we're trying somehow to recapture this information with the use of um, um, particularly of, of, of book, book catalogues to see if we can find some books which don't appear to survive. Uh, but we just don't have the quality of accounts that you have, interestingly. I mean, that, that that was a real surprise. But, you know, it is to be hoped that you will be able at some point to produce a list of these, uh, of these titles which were um, uh, commissioned, obviously were printed, but have now been completely lost.
3: We have, I mean... We- I'm operating on a much, much smaller scale if we're talking about printed materials. I mean, there's a very small number of printing houses for which one does have the production records. Um, But it's still, I mean, there's plenty for which we don't. And uh, absolutely, I mean, it it was rather encouraging for me in a sense to see... How much is unknown in your area because I tend to imagine there's a superabundance of everything and you have these wonderful libraries where everything is preserved and so you know the short title catalogue basically tells it how it is or tells it how it was and, and and that's that that is history as it really was and that's objective whereas one has a very odd situation here because of uh, in Russia um not only the scarcity of, of 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 things when produced but the 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 social instability subsequently Um, the uh, depredation of monastic libraries and of aristocratic libraries uh, which, if they were lucky after the revolution, went into the major state collections if they weren't getting burnt. Um, And a very peculiar situation in which really many unique copies of early Russian books, and certainly some of the best copies of Russian books are those which happen to be in Western libraries. So the, the earliest book printed in Ukraine um, in the early 1570s by Ivan Fyodorov, who also was the first Moscow printer, an um, axe and Accent epistles. By far the best copy in the world is in King's College, Cambridge, printed in 1574, bought in Moscow in 1576, brought to King's College, Cambridge, and nobody's touched it since. Um, and and uh, so so it's it's no we're we're feeding on scraps, feeding yeah. on scraps.
4: The, the, the point about national bibliographical projects is they do sort of encourage the idea that you have there the complete uh, corpus of books which were printed in, there, in, in those same places. But it's so far from the truth because the international market worked exactly to spread books around Europe. So we have plenty of books documented now which survive in French books which survive in no French library. Uh, but we've identified it elsewhere and uh, vice versa. I mean, We have Dutch books which survive uniquely in Hungarian libraries because the Hungarian students used to send them home to their patrons and parents to prove that they were working hard. So there's all sorts of reasons why national bibliography in principle really doesn't work. And that's quite apart from all the books which have just been lost altogether. Yeah,
2: may I um, to bring us to bring us back to one of our first discussion points, um, and that was this this issue we discussed briefly of, of sort of techno determinism and the rise of printing. And I just wanted to say, Simon, how much I enjoyed in your book that um, you know you emphasised the importance of handwriting. And obviously, you know, you can say handwriting is 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 a vital part of every culture, but just to demonstrate how much handwriting still changes in this period. Um, and how much it grows, as in how much more need there is for handwriting and the creation of, of scribal culture. Because, you know, often we, especially more in when this concerns Western Europe, scholars talk about the age of print. But the age of print is actually an age in which there is ever more handwriting than there was in the age of... Handwriting or the age of the manuscript. So, you know, your emphasis on the importance of all these new monastic foundations, um, I, I found I found very striking. And it's something perhaps that you know we we don't emphasize enough in in a, in our book in the bookshop of the world. But even as late as the end of the 17th century, the the official up poster, the Stutz of Harlem, the guy who is supposed to be posting up the the placards, is expected if someone gives it to him to be posting up handwritten posters as well. It's still part well, of his duties.
3: And really, I mean, once one moves from that into mass education, uh, children write by hand. People write letters by hand. Uh, most things are written by. Hand. It's really only, only, only in the very, very modern age, when the the the, the electronic device uh, replaces handwriting, that the age of handwriting has gone. Um, and and that cr- creates a serious problem for universities in the setting of examinations. Um, <laughs> but yeah.
4: but th- th- this, this is, I think, the consequence of, a, of, a, of a, a sort of prevailing sense that media technology is sequential, whereas it's not. It's cumulative. You always keep on doing what you did before. Even when something new comes along, and
3: each technology then then finds or develops its own, it's not a zero sum game. You can do new things. It's not a matter of one technology doing what the old one did, and the old one becomes redundant. They they find their own ecologies, and that indeed is is part of what I'm trying to do in my book. It's the ecology of various technologies and the shifting ecologies as as new ones come on stream.
0: You, you know what? If I um if I could, I'm going to have to jump in here um because we need to wrap up. But I but I want to say that it that is such a wonderful point. I even think about us having this podcast conversation here and how you know once upon a time there was print, and then there was radio, and then there was television, and then there was the internet. And now we kind of come back to podcasts that are sort of like radio, and radio never went away. I mean, as as an American thinking about um, how the political landscape has changed over the past 20 years, uh, one I think one has to look towards the role that radio has played in, in forgotten places that hasn't been appreciated. And um, in some ways, um, what I would just like to Oh, one thing I would just like to say about why both of your work. Um, both of these works inspire me so much is because I think we can all agree that, you know, we're historians because we can't do time travel yet, right? The technology's not there. So we're historians instead. And, and we have this disciplinary constraint that we have to work from our sources, which, as we, we all know, because there's this niggling problem of absence, um, leaves us all kinds of problems for really understanding the world. And, What inspires me about both of your works, you know, the graphosphere to kind of really try and step back in time and show us and see what people saw and experienced. And at the bookshop of the world, this tremendously ambitious project that tries to account for absence, that tries to, you know, use technology along with really old methods to help recreate the world that people knew that people knew. I mean, it's, it's, it's tremendously inspiring work. And I, and to all our, um our audience, um, if uh, I just want you all to know, we are, we've spoken here with such accomplished historians, and I gave short shrift to the works that they've published um so far. So I encourage you to check them out. I do, I do want to quickly point out that Andrew Pedigree and Arthur Der Vedvun have since po- co-authoring the Bookshop of the World, have co-authored another book, The Fragile Library, um, which is um, a history of libraries to definitely check out. And they have also each published an individual mon- monograph. Andrew Pedigree has published the book at War: Libraries and Readers in an Age of Conflict. Arthur has published. State Communication and Public Politics in the Dutch Golden Age. These are both um, this year coming out right now. I encourage you to check those out. And I also um, and I want to also point to Simon Franklin's work, in addition to the Russian graphosphere, Simon, you started as a medievalist, so it where you know these are the these are the historians that really squeeze water from a stone, um, and so you've been working on this issue for a long time, writing society and culture in early Rus, nine fifty to thirteen hundred, and I also want to give a shout out to one of the f- first books I read as a graduate student, um, the emergence of Rus, seven fifty to twelve hundred, and this is a book. Um, This is a book for anyone that is wondering how ideas about to whom territory belongs and what kind of essential people live in a place and the way that Vladimir Putin has um, abused history in propagating the war um, in Ukraine right now. um, Your book is one that can really take people back to to a a very different world and a history that is close to the sources and sensitive to what we know about this time. And and so I really um, want to encourage people to read that. But, um, But again, thank you so much for joining me. And I encourage everyone to, we'll put links in the description so people can learn more about your work past and forthcoming. And with that, thank you so much for your time today.